good. We welcome people from different parts of the world to come here and listen to our Signum Symposium tonight. So before I introduce our guest, Kat, just a little bit of introduction and announcements. And um, most of you know me, I'm Serena Higgins, Chair of the Language and Literature Department here and frequent host of the Signum Symposia. I want to tell you about a couple of upcoming events so that you can get those on your calendars and plan to attend those and spread the word to other people as well. Of course, the big, really important event that we have coming up is our conference, MythMoot. This is MythMoot 4, Invoking Wonder, which is in Leesburg, Virginia, June 1st through 4th. Now, um, I think registration may, deadline may already have passed for that, so I hope that the majority of you have already signed up and plan to be there. We may be recording some of the events there. There will be some thesis theater events going on as conference panels there at MythMoot, and I'm hoping that some of those can be recorded and distributed later if you can't make it live. So just keep your eye on the Signum website and social media and our YouTube channels to get more information about that. You can, of course, also look to see what's going on with the Lord of the Rings online events, the Exploring Lord of the Rings, and the Mythgard Academy classes. So check those out. Over here in Signum Symposia, we have two events in the works. So we don't have exact dates yet, but we do know what we hope those events will be. So we're hoping that mid to late June, we'll do a faculty chat. Occasionally, I've brought in some of our faculty members to interview them about their own research. What did they do their dissertation on, or what books are they working on right now, and so forth. And in June, we're actually going to flop it, and I'm going to be the guest instead. And I think that Dr. Carl Pearson will interview me, and I'll be talking about my work on Charles Williams. There have been two recent books that I want to discuss with you, and I hope that by then I may even have a release date for a forthcoming book to share with you. And then in July, do we have any Game of Thrones fans present? Well, if we do, then you know that the new season is premiering in July, and so we hope to have a roundtable on that, where we bring in some people who have done scholarly work on Game of Thrones, some reception theory, some critical work on that, uh, to talk about what we love and maybe what we don't love about Game of Thrones. So we don't have a date yet, um, but we do have we do have that in the works. So glad to hear that some of you are Game of Thrones fans and looking forward to that. All right, well then, um, final quick announcement is that we are really glad to be able to bring these Signum Symposia to you at no charge so far, at no um, cost, but it would be really great if those of you who are attending would consider giving a donation to Signum University so that we can continue doing that. And you can go to signumuniversity.org slash fund to do so. So please consider that. All right, well, let me introduce tonight's guest, Catherine Sass, or Kat. Kat graduated from Messiah College in 2009 with a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature. Currently, she works as an academic administrator at the University of Pennsylvania, and she has just completed her master's degree, or officially will have finished everything at the end of this, um, this session tonight. She's a student of all things arts and humanities, in particular Tolkien, the Inklings, Doctor Who, and the fantastic and imaginative tradition in storytelling. You should go and check out her blog, Raving Sanity, at wordpress.com. So she's here to talk about her thesis tonight, which is called We Are All Stories in the End, The Place of Doctor Who in the Fairy, fairy Tale Tradition. 
Her thesis director was Dr. Gavin Hops of St. Andrews University, and her second reader was Dimitra Femi of Cardiff Metropolitan. So welcome, Cass. Great to have you, Kat. Great to have you here. Thank you. So we want to start out uh, by just asking you a little bit of the background. How did you come to your research question? What, what question did you have in mind when you were starting to shape an idea for a thesis? Um, so generally, I think I approach projects like these by trying to combine different things that interest me. Um, so I'll be reading or watching something, and it'll remind me of something else. And you know that kind of turns into some sort of a writing project, um, either for a class or just on a blog or in a podcast or something. Um, so I mean, generally, that's kind of what this is, is, um, you know, I love literature, obviously. That's what I'm getting, you know, my degrees in. Um, and I uh, specifically have uh, focused on fantasy and fairy tales and, you know, speculative and imaginative fiction as my areas of interest. Um, so something I'm kind of looking to delve more deeply into. Um, and kind of at the same time as I was pursuing this uh, master's degree in imaginative literature, um, I was discovering Doctor Who. Um, so the two kind of, you know, ended up sort of, in, you know, inevitably sort of combining in my mind because it was probably the two things intellectually that I was most engaged with in the past five years or something. Um, so that's kind of what sparked it. Um, and then just in general, I think, um, you know, a lot of people will kind of casually throw it out there to say, you know, Doctor Who is a fairy tale, or, you know, or specifically um, things like, you know, Stephen Moffat's version of Doctor Who is a fairy tale, or even more specifically, season five was a fairy tale. And, and so it just kind of, um, whenever there are those sorts of sweeping statements, I think it triggers you to want to know what people mean by that. Um, or do they know what they mean by that? Um, and kind of want to define our terms a little bit and see if that's true or to what extent it might, you know, be true or not. Um, so that was kind of what, you know, drove me to start thinking about that. Um, I wrote a paper on, it was kind of supposed to be Doctor Who and fairy tales, realized that's way too broad and specifically was about um, Doctor Who's use of, you know, Tolkien's on fairy stories, you know, the four gifts um, and catastrophe and those elements that I presented at a previous um, myth moot. Um, and then I was happy enough with that to think um, that could be expanded to a thesis topic. Um, and that's kind of, you know, wanting to look, you know, beyond Tolkien, which I was pretty, you know, obviously familiar with him and with that essay. Um, and this is an excuse to do more wide reading into, you know, theorists and critics and the history of the genre um, and apply that to Doctor Who specifically. Right. Excellent. Now, I didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but it, it'll be fine. Um, what was the timeline with when you started your podcast? So tell everybody about your podcast in case they don't know. And where did that fall with writing that paper and developing this idea? So all of this happened, it feels like a long time because I've crammed a lot into a short amount of time, but it's all kind of pretty recently that everything happened. Um, so I started the master's degree with Signum the semester that it started. I took the first class, um, which was the fall of 2011. Um, and then met people at, you know, through, you know, obviously through the online classes and through social media and then went to the first Myth Mood and everything. and. Um, 
think it was there that I met Curtis Wyant for the first time um, at the first Myth Moot, and we kind of hit it off and kept talking about things that were common interest to us. Um, and one particular conversation was kind of trying to convince each other to watch shows that the other one liked. So it, it ended up kind of specifically narrowing down to Doctor Who in my case and Buffy the Vampire Slayer in his case. And that kind of led to, you know, kind of saying, oh, well, podcasting might be fun. What could we do? And the idea sprang of, well, we could introduce each other to these stories and kind of walk through them side by side kind of looking for connections between the shows that happens sometimes and not others but also kind of you know you have in every case a perspective of somebody who's you know more of an established fan and somebody who's the newbie being introduced so you can kind of trade off that way and keep it kind of even so that's where that started um, and I hadn't watched Doctor Who for that long before then you know, like maybe you know six months or something um, and I kind of I get tunnel vision when I find something I like and kind of zone in on it very intensely. So I certainly wasn't an expert, but I'd sort of crammed a lot of knowledge into that time. So um, that was how that ended up developed. And like a lot of things that I've written about on my blog or on other papers or in this paper were ideas that I got in conversation on the podcast with him. Um, right. You know, and it kind of you know, things that I would remember would then kind of become a topic of conversation in my own writing later on. So that sort of helped the project to grow. I love how you have that crossover between strictly academic work and a more popular venue. And that's something that Signum University has really been about from the beginning is that let's not keep our knowledge just in the academy yeah. or in the ivory tower, but share it with people who love it. Right, so right. And, and I mean, it's fun. I, I'm kind of... Um, also interested in film and TV as, you know, like for me, storytelling is really the primary thing and, and you know, the medium is sort of, you know, interesting but a sort of slightly secondary element or, um, you know, you can maybe talk about different things differently depending on the medium that they come in, but I'm sort of equally interested in those things. Um, so for the thesis, it was fun to do something kind of in a popular, talking about, you know, a popular show and a popular medium, but that also could use the, the literary elements that, you know, I'd been studying as well. So combining the two things was appealing. I also love what you said that the way your podcast proceeded was it was kind of a newbie and a more experienced person acting as a guide. And that's a very common trope in fairy tales. Sure. And literature. We often have the everyman kind of character, the Bilbo or the Lucy Pevensey character who opens some kind of a door to a mysterious new world um, and we're, we're shown into it. So I'm sure we'll get into that it's as we uh, get into, yeah, get into your work. So I'm just about to ask you to share with us a brief abstract of your thesis, but your podcasting partner has a question for you. What is Doctor okay. Who's name? What is Doctor Who's name? It's Who, right? <laughs> um, right. I mean, we'll never know it and that's the most important thing you know um, I'm sure he had one at some long-lost point in his history but um, we are not privy to that information and you know probably nor should we be because um, it's the 
that's the mythic element, you know, of the lost name, you know, that his name is a riddle and it's, you know, self-referential to the title and everything that, you know, the question of who the doctor is, is the question of, of the story and everything. So, um, yeah, I think if we found out his name, that would kind of spell the end of the story. So probably good that we don't ever find it out. Well said. All right, so uh, so you developed your interest in this topic, you had your research question, you had your field of study. Well, so can you share with us now a brief abstract of your thesis, your major argument, and essentially how you answered your research question? So kind of like the five, seven minute summary of your thesis itself. Sure, so um, I kind of said that was the central question was, if people say Doctor Who's a fairy tale, what does that mean? Um, you know, so first of all, what does that mean? And secondly, is that true or not? Um, and so I kind of started with, um, you know, I did a fair amount of reading into, you know, published scholarship in Doctor Who, and it's a fairly unexplored topic in question, I think. Um, there are, you know, many, again, many passing references to it, but no real in-depth studies or interrogations into it, how it functions as a fairy tale. Um, so that was kind of, you know, the, you know, and spoiler alert, the conclusion is I think it fits in the tradition. Um, so everything is a, you know, kind of working up to that conclusion. Um, but the previous scholarship, for the most part, um, had tended to look for um, specific references to, you know, fairy tales. So, which there certainly are. So, like, you know, if um, Bad Wolf, as the the meme in series one, is, you know, kind of referencing the big bad wolf, or, you know, Amy Pond flying in, you know, the space with her nightgown, you know, is kind of a visual reference to Wendy Darling, and um, things like that. Um, but, I, I, you know, so my argument is kind of that, though, while those certainly exist, that's not really what it takes to be a fairy tale, that there are... Um, these more, um, I guess, wider structural elements um, of, you know, how the story moves, what kinds of, not specifically what characters, like, you know, witches or, you know, dwarves or elves or anything in particular, not so much the, the, the people themselves, but um, the way that the story kind of moves, uh, you know, in particular in this kind of circular structure of, you know, I think Tolkien summed it up best with his there and back again. Um, you know, there's that sense of, you know, you go through a portal of some kind, whether it's a door, whether it's a forest, whatever it is, you leave the mundane world of your ordinary experience, you go transport through a portal to something fantastic, you experience, you know, wonder, you experience, you know, hopefully you experience these things that Professor Tolkien talks about, um, these gifts that it gives you, um, and then it returns home back to the domestic sphere, but changed. So there's some sort of growth or transformation, you know, as a result of that. Um, so those are kind of, you know, so in the, the paper I kind of split it, I kind of start with a generic history of the fairy tale, kind of how it develops as a genre through history, um, uh, getting to what we know of as the fairy tale now, um, and then kind of go through um, those two halves of kind of the form of it, what are the structural, formal elements of it, 
And then what are the functional elements? How does it um, affect the characters? How does it affect the reader? What are the the ethical or the moral implications of those things? Um, and then uh, after looking at each of those things, I then kind of move to Doctor Who and you know hopefully demonstrate that it you know does those things. Um, and then kind of you know circle back at the ending. Um, so that's the basic sort of outline of it. Um. Okay, here's a, here's a question that you raised in my mind as you were saying that. So if, if what's more important here is kind of a deep structure, right, mm -hmm. sort of the architecture of the story rather than specific references, what happens to the fairy tale structure then when it gets really stretched out? Because we're used to short fairy tales, right? We're used to like Little Red Riding Hood, a story that can be told in the one sitting at a child's bedside or something. But now this story has been stretched out episode after episode, season after season, over 50 years. Mm. So is each episode one fairy tale or each season, or does it turn into something else when you string them together? Right. So um, for sure these elements don't appear in every single episode of Doctor Who, and nor do I think they appear in every single fairy tale. Um, and I don't mean this to be a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's kind of one of the similarities between the two, is that they're so vast that you really can't define them in any one particular way. Because you name one theme of a fairy tale and you can name specific instances that don't necessarily conform to that particular motif. Um, but if you kind of put them all together, there's enough kind of Venn diagram over overlap that you can see, you know, a collective whole even if every single piece doesn't feature every element. Um, and I feel like Doctor Who kind of works that same way. Um, that, you know, you can kind of pull out themes like, you know, the the catastrophe or the, you know, um, uncanny objects or, you know, um, uh, those magical donors or whatever it is and find examples of them, but you're not going to necessarily find them in every single episode, but the whole is greater than the parts. And I think um, specifically, I mean, I'm talking about the new series here. Not that I don't think this could apply to the classic, but that's not what I focused on. Um, but I think that the new series with the focus on the, the character arcs of the companions has really highlighted this, um, especially when they're kind of done in a season or just a couple seasons. And so you kind of, again, if you look at their character arc, you can see very clearly there's, you know, the, the structure of an ordinary person who goes there and back again. Um, and that change over time. Um, so, and I think as far as your question about um, very short fairy tales, I think there's still an element of that in the fact that every episode is so different. Um, I mean, lots of shows have a kind of monster of the week set up, but I think that Doctor Who has kind of a toe in the anthology series, you know, even though it has ongoing characters and character arcs and references, it's not like it's a total reboot every time, there's still that kind of almost Twilight zone feel to it where you're not just doing a monster of the week, you're really doing like a premise of the week that every episode introduces a new world um, a new supporting cast, new kind of rules that you have to learn and everything. So I think in some individual episodes you can see them as little short stories. Um, and some have these fairy tale elements more clearly than others, but when you kind of 
put the tapestry all together, it um, kind of gives that that structure on a macro level. Right, right. Do you think it might be fair to say that fairy tale is something that can be done in a variety of other genres? So yeah. we've we've obviously had fairy tales that are that are novel length or novels that claim to be fairy tales or series of novels that claim to be fairy tales. Um, and of course, who is drawing on other genres as well? We've got a fantastic voyage, obviously, right? We have elements of epic and superhero when we meet with mm -hmm. the grand antagonists and so forth. I mean, on and on. There's so many other genres. But is fairy tale a thing that a writer or an artist can do within other forms? Yeah, I think absolutely that you can think of science fiction versions of these. You can think of um, one of the things, trends I, I reference um, is specifically in film, the kind of gothic fairy tale, um, which, you know, because like Cocteau does his weird French gothic Beauty and the Beast, and then you've got um, one of my favorites is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, um, which is, you know, kind of creepy Narnia. Like, it's Narnia with, like, everything turned backwards and in a really horrific way, but it still has the structure of a fairy tale, even if there's those um, gothic, you know, uh, horror elements. Um, uh, and so, yeah, at the end of Doctor Who, absolutely, like, this is no claim that Doctor Who is, I don't think it has to take away the other genre elements to recognize the fairy tale elements that, I mean, obviously it's a science fiction show that features, you know, aliens and pseudoscience and kind of, you know, um, travel through space and time and everything. So um, it can easily combine that with, you know, uh, with those things. And even specific episodes are clearly like, this is Doctor Who does genre X. Like, you can do a Western, or the Christmas special this last year was, you know, basically like a Superman episode, um, like a DC kind of comic thing. So, you know, kind of as many genres as you can think of. Um, right. And sometimes within the same episode. Um, I Recently I was thinking about it, for some reason, the episode Hide, which is on a couple years ago, which I don't think anybody loves quite as much as me, but um, for me, that's like one of the best examples of genre blending. Um, it's the one where they're in a creepy gothic moor, you know, in an old house. It's like absolutely um, standard haunted house kind of thing. And Victorian then it comes spiritualism. Yeah, but like yeah, they have the like medium and the kind of you know uh, ghost hunting equipment and all that kind of thing. And then it turns into this weird time travel, you know, thing where they're going through history taking photos of a person who's in a pocket universe and is spread out over all this time. Um, and then at the end, it kind of, the, the gothic terror goes away and it becomes this kind of, to me, catastrophic, like, rescue of this monster who's just trying to find his lost lover. And it's just like this really weird blend of, like, every ten minutes it sort of switches genres on you. Um, so I think one of the cool things it can do is blend all those things together, and I think that's fairy tales are that elastic um, that um, you know uh, plenty of authors have blended genres in the same way. So I think that they kind of go well together. 
And that episode is a really good example of one of the sides of fairy that maybe we tend to forget about. And you all just heard me spelling fairy differently there. It's, it's the fairyland that's the perilous realm. It's a terrifying realm for humans to venture into. And it's, it's a liminal space that's not quite here and not quite somewhere else and where anything could happen, where you could meet monsters. And whatever happens there, you're going to come back changed if you come back at all. Right, exactly. And it's also a commentary on us. I mean, that's one of the many episodes that makes the, the point of, you know, the doctor is the monster sort of right. point. Every, every lonely monster needs a companion yeah, kind of yeah. message, which turns later into you are the, the good Dalek kind of message right, as right. well. So it brings along those, uh, the fairy tale kind of morals, but that's a bit of a, that word is a bit thin for what mm. we're trying to talk about, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, here's another tiny fairy tale thing I was thinking about, and then we'll move on talking about the scholarship that you used. What about um, the element of rules and taboos and sort of sets of three and those kind of generic expectations in fairy tales? Do you see those working a lot in Doctor Who? Um, I, I did notice a few. I didn't um, chart them in the paper as much as I might have liked to have time for. Um, even with my narrowing, this was quite broad and, and uh, could get narrower. I think easily each of these sections could kind of be taken out and expanded. Um, so I didn't um, go through the kind of motifs um, to the extent. Um, so, you know, whether I can think of uh, examples off the top of my head is, um, is a question. But I think, I mean, specifically with the taboos, I think that relates um, to... Uh, in Chesterton's essay about the ethics of Elfland, there's that question of, um, he talks about, like, the common sense of them. And, like, so basically that, like, decisions have consequences. That, you know, he goes through that list of things that seem arbitrary to us, but in the story they have um, meaning. So, you know, a, a, he references Cupid and Psyche of, like, you know, you light a lamp and love flies away. Like, why? Like, why does turning a lamp on mean that love flies away? But in the symbolism of the, of the tale, it has meaning and everything. And I think that, you know, um, Doctor Who plays with those kinds of um, symbolic actions. Um, you know, of sen th you know, you get a sense at times that things that happen are the result of, you know, kind of more, uh, you know, inner choices that characters have made and that it might mean more than just, you know, the physical attributes of what happens. Um, what I keep thinking of for some reason is um, the day of the Doctor with the moment and how, you know, the, the idea of the moment as this weapon. Um, like, yes, you can kind of read it on the literal level of, you know, a weapon of mass destruction, but there's um, a lot more symbolic weight to that, um, you know, of, like, what does pressing a button mean, um, you know? And so I think it definitely, you have the sense of, even without having true allegory, as Tolkien called it, I think at times you get, you know, that sense of, of a deeper symbolic or allegorical meaning, um, which I think comes more from that fantastic tradition or fantasy tradition rather than pure sci-fi. Um, and that's when I think it transcends the sci-fi veneer and becomes something a little bit more magical, um, you know, where the 
the words that you use or the actions that you take have greater weight than just a physical consequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, this taps into what both Tolkien and Lewis have said about the ways that fantasy, fairy tale, and sort of speculative fiction are, are ways of us to realize our great desires, that we have these deep longings to be able to talk to animals, to be able right. to transcend space and time, to be able to violate these taboos and these impossibilities. And if someone says, if you do this, the universe will unravel, and you find a way to do it so that the universe does not unravel, or if it does, you can put it back together again, um, or you can reboot it. So they're sort of tying into these, tapping into these really deep human desires that we have. Right, and, and that there's a fundamental optimism to that idea that, like, there can be tragedies within Doctor Who, but fundamentally it's an optimistic story where the Doctor keeps going. Um, you know, there are casualties along the way and there are consequences, but, um, you know, there's, again, that idea of this is an inexhaustible character and an inexhaustible story, and there's something hopeful about that idea that there's always a way around the, the tragedy, you know, um, so... Oh, okay, yeah, I'm fascinated you said that, because I was just going to say, but of course it also realizes our deepest fears, and then you said that it's ultimately optimistic. So I think you're probably right, but just to push on that a little bit more, it also explores the things that we fear and hate the most. So in a way it's a show about goodbyes and about endings. Because right. yes, the doctor goes on, and we know that he's always going to succeed, he's going to beat the monsters and so forth, but the price of that is that he always has to lose everyone that he loves. Okay, we get around that sometimes too. We save them to the hard drive or whatever we might do. Um, but it's, it's about how much love hurts and what happens when you're passing each other the wrong way in your love path and so forth. So you think it is ultimately optimistic? Um. Yeah, I think so, um, because if the doctor keeps going, then stories keep going and life keeps going. And, you know, the only, the, the scariest, you know, uh, possibilities are whenever the doctor lands somewhere where, you know, the, the humanity has ended and there's nothing beyond that point. But, you know, then I think there is pushback there. And um, you mentioned the kind of everything ends theme, um, which comes up a lot. Um, and, but I think the... The counter to that is um, Clara at one point, you know, the doctor says everything ends and Clara says except you. So this kind of, again, on that metafictional layer, you know, there's that notion that the doctor doesn't have to end because his story can continually reboot itself and keep going. Um, but I don't know that, um, you know, so one of the things I talked about earlier was that circular nature um, that I don't know that returning home is necessarily seen as um, a tragic ending. Um, you know, in a lot of these stories and a lot of fairy tales, um, there's definitely a sense of loss. I would call it bittersweet rather than tragic. Um, and I don't think that necessarily means it's not optimistic or hopeful. But there is a sense of loss that, you know, you, in order to return home changed, you have to return home. Um, and so um, I think the scenes that always are the saddest for me are the scenes of parting, um, even more than the death scenes for the most part. Um, it's when a companion has to say goodbye. Those are the real 
tear-jerking moments. Um, and um, specifically with Tolkien's ideas about fairy tales, I think the tension between the two is one of the things that makes them really poignant for him, that he talks about um, the, the not knowing which fear is worse, that eventually the gates might be locked. No, but which is the scarier prospect, that you're inside or outside, right? Like, like are you going to be stuck... Um, you know, the gates might be lost and, you know, the the gates would be locked and the keys lost forever. And, you know, and the question for me is, like, okay, but what side of the door are you on and which is the scarier prospect? Um, because I think, like, you know, you think of his uh, hobbits who want to return home. As much as they love the land of adventure, um, there's something about, well, I'm back, that's satisfying. Um, but then there's also, like, Smith of Wooden Major, where the idea of losing access to fairy is a scary and, you know, sad prospect. Um, and I think that tension is something Doctor Who does really well, um, uh, especially Rose's ending of, like, it's just when she says, you know, I'm going to be with you forever, that um, the choice gets taken away from her because the portal closes and, you know, she goes through you know, the time rift, and she's on the other side in the alternate universe, and that doesn't matter how much she bangs on the door, that's kind of the ending of the travels for her, but at the same time, she has this restored family unit that she didn't have before, so she has Jackie, she has Mickey, she has her father who died, um, so there's this domestic contentment, even if she loses access to the traveling, um, so I think it kind of does both, um, would be my and I think it depends on the characters. Um, mm -hmm. Like, Claire is weird. And, like, every time I talked about any elements of the, of the companions, I had to say, like, except for Clara, um, who bucks every trend. So of all the new series companions, she's the only one to really, unless you, I mean, you could take Amy and Rory as having a symbolic death with the Weeping Angels. Um, but you know that they went back in time. They lived the rest of their lives on a literal level. Um, but Claire's the only one to really, like, die on screen, like, have a physical death. Um, and yet, she's kind of brought back to a pseudo-life, but it doesn't return, include a return home. It, she stays in the ferry. You know, she spins off and becomes the doctor in a different show. Um, and so she kind of is on the opposite side of Rose, I think. She's someone who doesn't get the return to domestic, you know, tranquility, she stays to live this kind of immortal life, adventuring in her own TARDIS with her own companion and becomes this kind of pseudo-doctor. So um, it depends on which companion you're talking about, and it's kind of fun to see the variations between the different characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Connecting to the things you've been saying from Tolkien, Kate Neville observes that she can see the sense of recovery that the Doctor brings. He's such a curious person. He often teaches others to look at everything anew. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's, I mean, that's built into the structure of the show, too, that we get to see things new every time there's, there's a regeneration. But you also mean that he mm -hmm. brings a, a very specific sense of recovery, Kate, from, from Tolkien's Unfairy Stories, that we see the same old things and we see them with fresh eyes. Well, and it works on many levels because he does this for the companions, right? He takes them out of their world and shows them something new, but they do it for him too because, as he says, he's seen stars die and be born and all the wonders of the universe, but he says to Amy at one point that, you know, 
when you see it, I see it. So there's a vicarious enjoyment that he gets a recovery from the adventure with the companion. Um, and then there's the, you know, the meta layer of this is what the audience receives too. That's the, the gift of a fairy tale is a kind of vicarious access to that wonder. And hopefully it changes you. It's not just the characters that, you know, because you're going through the same you go into a story and you come back out. Um, and if it's a good story, you come back different. So it's kind of doing that on, you know, for the audience, hopefully, too. And, you know, opening up, if you kind of maybe get a taste for some wonder in your storytelling, hopefully it makes you more receptive to it in your primary life as well. Um, so it can have a kind of truly beneficial effect, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matthew DeForest is commenting on that. He says it's an inter interesting concept you have that we're seeing the separation from the point of view of the fairy through the doctor rather than through the viewpoint that we usually have, which is the human that comes back. Right. Well, and some of it is his longing for um, the ordinary, simple life, too, um, which I think was a stronger element um, a couple seasons ago when when Russell Davies was in charge, I think Moffat has backed away from that a little bit, but there's a bunch of references to, um, you know, to, to that Peter Pan element of he's looking through the window at the one thing he can never have, which is the family. Like, um, there are a bunch of moments like that. Um, you know, so like in uh, Human Nature when he's the human and he gets a taste of a mortal life. And it's really sad when he, like, you know, the, the John Smith character sees the life he could have with this nurse and having children and settling down and being kind of a normal person and, and that he gets kind of ripped away from that. Um, so I think, and that's very Tolkienian too, that like you're not sure if which is the gift, is it death or is it immortality, that each of them has their pros and their cons and whichever side of the fence you're on, you're a little bit envious of the people on the other side of the fence. Like, you know, they clearly got the better deal and I'm, you know, I got the short end of the, you know, straw. So uh, I think it plays, the doctor's longing plays with that of um, both kind of a longing for maybe things that he doesn't have access to, um, but then also that vicarious wonder of, it's not enough just to travel. He has to travel with a companion, with somebody new who he can sort of play tour guide to. Um. Here are two comments I'll roll together that are prompted by that. Professor Dickinson asks, or says, but Doctor Who never returns, never comes home. So it seems the restless wanderer has made Earth a home. And Curtis said, but there's also a sense in which the Doctor himself is also cut off from fairy, being the last of the Time Lords. Sure. So which, what is fairy and what is home in the story? Oh, that's a good question. So I kind of looked at it, um, you know, for as much as I'm, you know, talking about things from the doctor's point of view, for the most part, um, I think structurally the companions are kind of, at least in the new series, are treated as the protagonists, that each time there's a new companion, the show kind of restarts a new tale, and you're starting with the ordinary heroine who, you know, goes adventuring. Um, so, um, you know, to me that makes the doctor more like one of these sort of immortal helper, helpers of a fairy tale. Like, that puts him analogous to, you know, um, 
elves or you know characters or creatures like that who um, aren't you know necessarily human and don't have that same um, you know structural element to their stories um, so yeah but um, I mean that's a good point that uh, he's cut off from his home that longing is definitely uh, an element on both sides and among the characters um, you know, which one of the things that kind of reminded me of, too, is um, Lewis's joy. That, like, you know, a sense of unfulfilled desire, which is kind of desirable in itself, um, is an element of the stories. And I think maybe having the characters have these kinds of longings, um, you know, they don't have literal quests to go on, usually. Um, but there is a sense of questing, of looking for something, looking for you know, a, a better way of living or looking for some new experiences or whatever it is um, that I think can relate to the way that the stories, you know, can affect the reader and everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I have three different questions I want to ask at the same time. Let's see. I do want us to loop back around towards the end to talking more specifically about the scholarship and what scholars you used, but let me ask two really huge questions now. Maybe you can give small answers because they're, like, each one is a project on its own. So this one is just kind of a straight up, kind of dumb literary question. Just throw it out there. So is he a Christ figure? Uh, I mean, at times. I don't think in general that's his function. I think self-sacrifice is certainly a theme. Um, and that he, um, in, you know, enacts that a lot. Um, most recently in this past episode, which I won't spoil for anybody, but, like, there was a huge self-sacrificial element and a price paid in that that was pretty amazing. Um, so, if I mean, I don't know that that makes him a Christ figure in the, in the fullest sense. Um, you know, I tend to think of him uh, as having maybe too much of the trickster element in him to really fulfill that, you know, that he is kind of a liar and, you know, a little sketchy and kind of, you know, um, you know, more ambiguous than that, I would say. That there's, you know, that keeps him from being a fully you know, a full embodiment of Christ-like attributes, maybe in the way that Aslan is or something. Um, but I think there are times where he, you know, acts in a Christ-like way, um, whether it's through self-sacrifice or something else. Um, so that would be my answer to that. Yeah. Professor Croft says it's going to be interesting to see what comes of the sacrifice in the last episode. I know, right? Well, let me bring that back to Tolkienian terms again for a minute to, to continue complicating the Christ figure thing. Um, is his is the Doctor's immortality and going on and on and on, does that actually kind of complicate Tolkien's terms? Because Tolkien's terms with the catastrophe, don't they sort of rely on there being an end to time and there being final deaths and final judgment and then a new mm. eternity. Um, so is the doctor's regeneration and coming back, like is that 
kind of emblematic of Tolkien's Roman Catholic terms about death and judgment in heaven, or does it actually problematize that? Um, yeah, I think it probably does. I think it's not working with a Roman Catholic worldview in the same way that Tolkien is. So there are certain things that Tolkien is not taking for granted, but kind of, um, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe taking for granted or assuming about this is how the world works and kind of, you know, how these stories represent that worldview. Um, that I don't know that, you know, maybe at moments Doctor Who kind of conforms to that, but um, I don't know that it does in general. And I think the endlessness of it is a big part of that. Um, but I think that um, what you were talking about earlier with the more um, melancholy elements play into that of, you know, uh, the important part of that to me with Tolkien is for you catastrophe to work, you have to have catastrophe as a possibility and that that should even maybe be the rule and that the you catastrophe is the, the occasional break from that pattern of a glimpse at something hopeful beyond the suffering and sorrows that we, you know, endure and everything. So I think that kind of works with the elements of the endings and the leavings and the partings and the dyings and all those sad things that keep recurring is, you know, things, everything has an end except the doctor. And so, you know, but for him to, you know, exist, for him to keep going, for him to get a new companion, have a new adventure, it necessitates the death of the old ones. Um, like, in order for the story to continue, it has to continually change, and that means moving on from things. And so the sadness and the hope kind of work together, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew made a good point. I was thinking, too, that maybe he's more like the wandering Jew than a Christ figure, unable to go home, but he must wander. But, of course, he does get to go home with the planet's possible Armageddon, so there's that point as well. But let me, let me take us a different direction now, because we've talked a lot about Tolkien, a little bit about Lewis, a little bit about Chesterton, so you have these sort of um, progenitors of the, the modern ways of adapting fairy tale and fantasy. But who else did you use? What scholars were most important to your work? Did you have some important secondary studies that you drew on? Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, kind of the two big groups, um, well, maybe three big groups, but, you know, kind of starting with fairy tale theory, um, you know, those inklings and in their either forebears or their descendants was kind of, you know, the main one, and probably what I was most familiar with before I started was Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and MacDonald, and even like Neil Gaiman, who is kind of in that Inglings tradition, but also uh, wrote for Doctor Who, so he's a nice, you know, bridge between the two. Um, that was the kind of most obvious place, but um, I read a lot of that, you know, beforehand. Um, what was new to me was um, some other um, fairy tale theorists that I hadn't read before. Um, like uh, The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, which is one of those classic pieces of scholarship where you're like, this is so clearly dated of the 1970s, and yet totally indispensable. So it's kind of, you can see the ways in which we've moved past his kind of very Freudian interpretation of things. Um, like, And so his actual analysis of fairy tales, I didn't find all that 
useful or compelling. Um, but when he was talking just on a big thematic level of how fairy tales work, um, I found it very useful and made a lot of great connections to things that I'd been thinking about. Um, and he's a good counterpoint to Tolkien, who Tolkien and Lewis kind of, I don't think they deny that fairy tales can be for children, but they want to, they want to push back on the notion that it's purely a children's genre and say that this is essential storytelling for anybody, which I think is true. Um, but then uh, Bettelheim kind of specifically says these types of stories address children's concerns specifically. That it's, you know, and so there is a reason that they're appealing and that there's a relationship there that, you know, um, it's about weak people who triumph. You know, it's about growing and transforming, you know, which kind of mimics the process of growing up and that you're constantly going through changes and that the whole world is new to you and that you're just exploring it so that it specifically addresses, you know, anxieties that they might have. Um, yeah, each of them sort of defending fairy tales against an overcorrection in their own time. Yeah, like the right? pendulum has swung a little bit too far. Read these stories are just for kids, and then Bettelheim is saying we've lost the right. importance. Of these but they're not, not for kids. Development. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, I think Doctor Who very usefully straddles that line. Like, is it a children's show? Yes and no. Like, you know, it family show is a lame term, but that's kind of what it is. Like, it's a show for anybody. It's a show that can you know doesn't necessarily limit itself to a particular age group. I don't think. Um, so, you know, Bettelheim was new to me, um, he was a Freudian, you know, psychoanalyst, so, you know, it, it, Freud is important, and specifically I read Freud's essay on the uncanny, um, which has been used by a lot of fairy tale scholars to talk about how, um, those stories work of having a kind of animated universe, and how that can be an unsettling thing, to find that things in your own home are suddenly animated. Um, you know, the, the uncanny, uh, we translate that way, but the, the German word is unheimlich, it's unhomely. So there's a domestic aspect to that, um, which is great for Doctor Who where, like, statues and shadows and, you know, egg beaters and, you know, whatever you could, whatever household items you can think of are not just animated but sometimes malevolent, and so they give you that creepy factor and everything. Um, and then uh, I read some, I didn't uh, reference any one Doctor Who scholar in particular. For the most part, I wanted to do wide scholarly reading because I'd really not done a lot up to that point um, into things that had been published on Doctor Who. But there are a number of collections of essays that um, had, you know, points that I could pick out here and there and, and you know, ideas that sparked, you know, further ideas from me. Um, and then my um, advisor, um, Gavin Hops, um, pointed me towards some good resources for talking about um, wonder and the imagination and how, um, you know, that works in fantastic stories and how that then affects the reader. Um, his emphasis is romanticism, so that was really helpful to have somebody who could you know, pull out specific essays or book chapters and say that you should take a look at this and, and see how it might connect and how it might apply. Um, so that helped with the element of 
showing how the wonder affects the companions and then how access to that can translate to the reader. Um, so those were the kind of groups that I kind of, you know, sorted everything into. Yeah. Um, so how, how is the Academy handling Doctor Who these days? I mean, is this, does, do you still have to be working on the margins or do you feel like this scholarship is mainstream enough? What's the attitude of academia towards this sort of work as far as you I can mean, tell? I don't know that it's dissimilar to other fantastic you know, stories and genres. Um, you know, I work at a big university and went in and found many books on Doctor Who. I mean, I don't know about many, like a dozen, you know, maybe two dozen. So like, not nothing, not, they didn't have whole racks on Doctor Who, but they had many, you know, scholarly collections that, you know, were from, you know, publishers, both, both university and independent. Um, so, you know, I think I didn't find a lot in, um, like, journals. Like, you know, uh, uh, you know, I didn't find a lot of single articles. Like, for the most part, I kind of found book collections. So maybe it's still more of a niche that way that it's, you know, you kind of have to go maybe know, go looking for it and know that that's what you're looking for to find it. Like, you know, not a lot came up on, like, you know, JSTOR and everything. Um, and I think some of the best work is being done on the fringe, like, you know, uh, when I don't reference him a ton, but um, I've read a blog which is becoming a book series by uh, Philip Sandifer, um, who uh, is an academic but a self-published one. Um, and he did this uh, enormous critical history of Doctor Who right from the beginning. That's all on his blog that he started many years ago and he just worked his way through it. Um, and, you know, is one of those great people you read that uh, you enjoy even when you disagree with him because he is challenging and, you know, makes you think of something in a way you just wouldn't have occurred to you before. Um, and uh, so he's blogged that and is turning that into a book series that, you know, he kind of has an independent, you know, uh, press that he's started. Um, and so I think he's up through volume six and there's more, you know, being edited and forthcoming. Um, so, you know, I, it, that's a popular blog as far as Doctor Who blogs go on the internet. I mean, I guess it would be nice if that had um, a, schol a scholarly reputation as well, but to what extent it does, uh, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, um, we have a great series of comments here for me to share. And Tom Hillman was just confirming what you said, that it was a lot like that with Tolkien, and it often happens that when studies start outside of academia proper, the books come first and the journal articles later. Um, Professor Swank asked whether you were thinking... Yeah, um, but then Professor Swank asked if you were thinking about publishing your thesis, and Professor Janet Croft, who is the editor of Mythlore, said, We've only had one article on Doctor Who and Mythlore, and I'm certainly open to more. So, this there little dialogue behind the scenes here among our professors, that may be a venue you could consider. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, I mean, I would like to publish in some form. I'm not 100% sure whether it um, would need some tweaking. I went longer than was in the written guidelines with my advisor's permission. So there's a chance it's a bit long to be published in, in a journal. Um, 
But um, so whether that means cutting down, whether that means chopping it up and expanding into particle-sized, you know, pieces, um, I'm not quite sure. But like that's kind of once I'm past this hump, that's the next thing to start thinking about is what to do next and how to turn it into something that can be shared. Exactly, exactly. Well, send it out and I mean if more needs to be done on it then your peer reviewers, you know, your readers will suggest those things and that, that varies from journal to journal and um, you'll find something that suits the length. Kate Neville is expressing solidarity that she went over the length as well. Um, yeah, a lot of people do it. We're even having people now proposing projects that are going to be maybe two parts. It's going to be significantly longer. Yeah, because we wanted you to write something that maybe you could publish at a, at a conference. Right, right. Um, or that you could... Yeah, mine, I think mine, mine ends up around 60 pages, uh, excluding the, the work cited. So... Um, yeah, what's your word count? Oh, I don't even remember. Right. I can't. Well, it sounds like you have at least two articles there. Tom Hillman is thinking maybe you could expand it a bit more into a monograph. You're certainly close to that. Great. Well, get it out there. Okay. Um, so we're just about up on the end of our time here. If anybody else has any final, just quick thoughts, I don't know if we really have time for any more extended questions, but Professor Swank says, and I agree, congratulations, Kat. Your research sounds very interesting, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Chris. Um, it will be archived in the Signum Library, so everyone who has um, a Moodle or a Google Classroom login will be able to access it and all previous PCs from our MA. Uh, Professor Dickinson is saying, he agrees, congratulations, well done. Demetra Feeney, uh, your second reader, says just to say well done for a cogent and well-argued piece of work. Thank you. So thank you very much, Kat. This was a lovely evening. Good. And Thank you I'll so much for hosting. See you at MythMoot. Yes. Hope All right. See you there. Good night, everybody. Bye.